Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This week, we launch a new series, Conversations with Publishers. Why? Because it seemed to me that being curious about books didn't stop at the people who write them. It can also mean being curious about those who commission them and publish them, who decide what they look like and how we discover them. And as most though not quite all of the books featured on this podcast come from university presses, that will be the main focus of this series. I knew immediately I didn't want interviews that would simply be adverts for guests' own press. That's boring for them to rehearse, and boring for you and me to listen to. I wanted people who would be able to reflect on the whole publishing landscape for serious non-fiction books, but also talk interestingly about their place in it and their trajectory through it so far. My first guest, my guinea pig, as I confessed he would be in my invitation to him, is Derek Krisoff. Derek is director of West Virginia University Press, and previously worked at the university presses in Georgia and Nebraska. On his website he writes, There are smart people talking about publishing on the internet, but there should, I think, be more of them and more perspectives from people who do nuts and bolts publishing work in particular. If you're in that group and have something to say, hit me up. So I did. By that time, I'd also seen his Twitter account and knew that he had interesting, sometimes provocative things to say. For example, I predict publishing will not be successfully reinvented by people who are angry at publishing. When we spoke a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the nature of West Virginia University Press, within the University Press world, but also in its own regional landscape in Appalachia. It's the biggest book publisher of any kind in its home state, but tiny compared to HarperCollins, publisher of the controversial bestseller Hillbilly Elegy. The New York Times called it a frisky memoir with a bit of conservative moralising dangling off. So how did Derek and his colleagues enable other voices from his region to make an effective riposte to Hillbilly Elegy? We'll come round to all that. But I began by asking Derek to go back 21 years. He's doing graduate work in history. Is an academic career beckoning? Sure. I mean, it would have led to a PhD and likely not to a job. And that's sort of what, uh, what the, the cost-benefit analysis looked like for me. 
almost exactly 21 years ago, 21 years ago, the spring when I decided to jump ship. I was, I had moved back, I'm a New Yorker originally, I would moved back to New York City to do dissertation research in history. Uh, it was the second half of the 90s and people were having a good time and the market was saying we don't want that. I don't think the job market for PhDs, uh, you know, for tenure track jobs was as bad then as it is now, but it was bad. And those were the push factors. I mean, the pull factors towards publishing included the fact that I always liked reading uh, the acknowledgments and, and for the academic books that I was being assigned. And, you know, you're, you're assigned thousands of pages in grad school per week, uh, in history at least. And it's easy to skip the acknowledgments, but I liked the sort of insight into the human networks that yielded or produced books. I like seeing the same names come up. I like seeing who the advisors were, who the editors were, uh, in cases where there were agents, who the agents were. I started to develop a sense, too, of, of what the names on the spines and the logos on the spines meant. I was developing a bookshelf, and it was interesting to me that seeing Duke on the book meant something different from seeing Cambridge on the book. And I became interested in series. Why, why is all the labor history I'm reading from Illinois? Well, they've got a series there. And what went into that set of decision-making on the part of the publisher, and how are they crafting these identities? And that was all intriguing to me. And then when I went to my first big academic conference, which was a meeting of the American Historical Association, and went to the, the book exhibit, it seemed like that was a, that was a, a, a real-life um, instantiation of the things that I'd been starting to glean from my reading. That these were, I imagined, uh, the conversations between editors and would-be authors happening in real time in front of me that I had, that were sort of behind or beneath the acknowledgments that I'd been reading. And it was, it was very exciting. I liked the deal-making idea. And I applied for a couple of jobs, really just two, and was uh, accustomed to the notion coming out of academia that it was, you know, you have to apply for a thousand jobs to get a single interview. I got asked to interview by both places, and it all moved very swiftly, again, in, in, uh, in uh, distinction from how things work in academia. And I was working as an editorial assistant at Routledge uh, maybe two weeks later. You know, this was the 90s, and Routledge had a very distinctive character. And I knew what that logo on the spine meant. And, and the logo was on the doors to the building. I was in the New York office, not, not the UK one. Uh, and I remember they got bought by Taylor and Francis while I was there. And they came and took down the logos from the, the doors and put up new logos. And I, I just seemed, it was almost painful to me. I mean, I, I didn't think mm. that the, the, the corporate decision makers who decided to do that um, had the emotional attachment to that imprint to that logo, to the brand, I guess, at some level, uh, that I did as a reader, and I thought they were sort of undoing what had taken a long time to build up. It was actually a wonderful experience the couple of years I spent there. I continued to have uh, friends and colleagues from my, my Routledge days, but it, it did suggest that there was something about not-for-profit publishing, some advantage maybe, uh, when, you, when you saw how the, how the reputation of, of Routledge changed so quickly based on what seemed like top-down decisions. So I went to um, really three university presses where I spent the bulk of my career at the University of Georgia, University of Nebraska, as you mentioned, and then as of about four and a half years ago, West Virginia University Press, uh, where I'm director, which is my first director job. I think all of those presses have in common that they're, uh, obviously they're university presses, so they're not-for-profit. They are attached to public universities, and they're pretty far from New York and, and Cambridge and, and Northern California and other sort of big global publishing centers. And I like publishing in places that don't have a lot of other publishers. And I like the perspective that's uh, kind of folded into doing that work. I mean, West Virginia is a great example. There are four people working here full time. 
which makes us among the very smallest university presses, but we are the largest publisher in the state of West Virginia, uh, book publisher anyway. And we're among the largest book publishers in all of Appalachia, which is a very distinctive region within the United States, as you may know, um, in part for its poverty. So having a book publisher at all and being able uh, to, to lead that book publisher is a, is a very exciting if you had stayed in in New York, which I guess is a is a another you know path not taken, but you might have moved into a particular kind of of trade publishing, you know, maybe a sort of on a serious nonfiction list, where where the ethos might have been you know similar in terms of attention to the words and the quality of the scholarship. Your community, I guess, would have been the New York um, publishing community and writer community and and galleries and artists and that sort of thing. So, who do you see? Who is your community in West Virginia? What sort of networks are you plugged into and is your press plugged into there? Because as you say, you are the biggest publisher, you're a team of four, but you're the biggest publisher in your state. So that network that you have, that sort of professional network, must feel and and look a bit different. That's a a very good question, and I I think about it a lot. And first and foremost, the university. I should should say this is a, a very supportive university. They are proud to have a university press. When we do get attention, as we sometimes do, in the, the Times or the Atlantic or Harper's or something, uh, it is celebrated as an enormous success, uh, regardless of whether it's, it's a WVU faculty member you know, who's the author in question. This, just, it, it, this is a, a major research university, but there are only so many ways that you encounter the words West Virginia University in those big sort of global media outlets. And the press is, is a significant part of, of, of pressing outward that reputation. But I think, you know, I'll answer your question with a, with a specific example, uh, which is a book that we've just published that's sort of a counter New York book, both in its content and I think the way that we've published it. So, so our biggest book of the moment, and really, although it's only been out about eight weeks, one of the biggest books we've ever published is uh, called Appalachian Reckoning. It's a response to a book published by HarperCollins in, in New York and, and elsewhere called Hillbilly Elegy, and I don't know how much that sort of penetrated consciousness in, in the UK, but it's one of the best-selling nonfiction books of the Trump era. Um, has sold hundreds of thousands or a million-plus copies probably at this point, and is being made into a major movie, and has sort of been seized upon as a way for, for people on the coast to understand the, uh, the Trump voter and, and the people of, of, of my region of Appalachia and the Rust Belt from a, from a fairly conservative perspective. And HarperCollins has done it the way that, you know, with the resources that they have, um, the way that they do it, which is very well. And they have helped the authors who develop this platform to the point where he's on talk shows and his name comes up as a potential political candidate and he's become a public intellectual. Um, and he had some name recognition before he wrote the book, but it, it's this sort of relationship between those uh, global networks centered in New York and an author uh, with a particular kind of book and a particular kind of politics that's pushed that out. So, so we published a book that is uh, a, a, a counter-perspective to Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, we do not have the resources, obviously, to publish it the same way, but we have worked with the authors to get them in at bookstores, for example, uh, in Appalachia. And bookstores are a big part, to come back to your question, a big part of our network. And they have had you know, 200 or more people come out in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Asheville, North Carolina, and Louisville, Kentucky, to bookstores that are big for us, but you know, are not the, the same as, as the, the big Manhattan or Los Angeles bookstores, and get coverage in those cities as well, and kind of build what feels like a more ground-up buzz for the book. That, to me, is, is suggests the ways that we can publish and the sorts of networks that we 
call upon and develop in trying to, to publish differently uh, than, than a place like HarperCollins does. Another thing, if you give me another minute on that book, I, I'd like to talk about it too because I think it suggests the importance of acquisitions work, which is often lost in conversations about publishing and especially as more people are sort of seizing upon the promise of open access. So acquisitions editors, and that's the way I've come up through, through the ranks, um, are the people who sort of work on books before they go into copy editing. So the actually signing them, um, figuring out what to publish and encouraging people to publish with you and helping shape the books before they are sort of in the process. It is a very specific skill set. It's expensive. You know, the labor that goes into books is the most expensive part of it. And I think a lot of people who aren't in publishing understand that something like copy editing is a skill and design is a skill. But acquisitions is a skill too. And this is a book that, that's fascinating uh, to me in part because it probably wouldn't have come to pass at all if not for the acquisitions investment in it. A, um, a colleague of mine at the time has since moved on named Andrew Pozanskis and I agreed that there should be a book arguing against hillbillyology. Um, we didn't have the resources to hire somebody to write it, which you know, cost thousands of dollars. But we found a panel at an academic conference that was critiquing hillbillyology and convinced the convener of that panel to edit a collection of responses. So right away, it's something that sort of, and it's not to take away from his work at all. He edited the book and it's, it's his work. But it's, it's something that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't approached him. And then, moreover, we had another project, Andrew and I, um, that we were considering that was, wasn't explicitly about hillbillyology, but was about sort of the diversity of Appalachia as told through a variety of first-person um, narratives, life writing, photography, etc. And we thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to, to put these both in the same book? So that maybe the first half would be academic critique of hillbillyology. The second half would be alternatives to hillbillyology. You know, that there are black people. In Appalachia, and there are uh, political radicals, and there are uh, gay and lesbian people, and we could have their perspectives to sort of balance the the, the, the white conservative male perspective of the author of Hillbillyology. Uh, and again, it, all credit to the the two editors of that book who came together and figured it out and have done a wonderful job. But a lot of sort of engineering went into identifying these people, bringing them into dialogue, and getting the book out at all, I think there's sometimes a notion that you can hang out a shingle, you can save costs on labor by not having acquiring editors, by not having that sort of entrepreneurial spirit that, um, that, that brought to fruition a book like Appalachian Marketing. You can hang out a shingle and, and people will come to you and you can have this sort of passive orientation toward what you publish. And, and in my experience, it, it isn't true. And, and I think uh, an example like that book. Uh, which has relied, to come back to your initial question, the success of which has relied on the kind of networks that those authors and we as a publisher have, um, shows how important the acquisitions investment is. I think sometimes, I mean, I agree with a great deal of what you've just said. I think sometimes the perception is based too much on the model of the journal article and the publishers mm -hmm. are really just maybe, you know, making the article conform to house style and doing the typesetting and, and not really seeing that there is a role for an acquisitions editor, as you've just described, to either tap into something which is already going on or perhaps bring people together in, in yeah. creative ways or, or approach an author in a creative way with a suggestion and really add something or re-initiate something rather than just being, you know, as you were saying, the passive recipient of a manuscript which needs a little bit of a, of a tidy up. And I, I, that's, that's certainly what I believe in sort of passionately as, as one of the, 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 the things that make um, editing worthwhile. I, I agree. And, and I think 
It's interesting to me, one of the statistics that I pull out a fair amount is uh, the, the portion of sales at university presses of books going to libraries is something like, it's hard to, to, to know exactly, but it's something like 20%. And, and a couple of generations ago, that would have been 70%. And I think the fact that, uh, based in part on, on the journal model, people have this notion, well, the university press is there to credential authors so that they get tenure at their universities, and their books are bought by university libraries. And that's a sort of, it's a very uh, mechanical way of thinking about the process. And certainly some of that is involved in what we do. But um, the fact that 80% of our books are not going to libraries, I think, is, a, is a, a testament to how active publishing really is. It's not just a question of you get something, as you said, make sure that the style conforms and then kind of uh, push it out to libraries. It's, it's often a question these days of helping authors connect with different sorts of audiences. And they're often university authors. They're often academics. But they can write different sorts of books. Um, they can be encouraged to write books that they might not have thought of, or they can be encouraged to reposition the work that they're doing so that it reaches new audiences. And I think sometimes that, that work is seen by critics of university press publishing as somehow representing um, a deviation from what's supposed to be the role of university presses. But I think it, it suggests a sort of a flourishing. I, I think of a press like Ohio State, which is another sort of aspirational press for us, um, you know, they've got a series now of graphic novels, well, they're not novels, whatever the, the nonfiction equivalent of graphic novels is, on Latino and Latina studies. You know, not the sort of thing that most academics would think to do on their own, but they're helping to to sort of bring into the world a whole new sort of book. And that, to me, and a whole new sort of audience. And that, to me, is as innovative or more so than a potential change to the business model, such as open access if I were to ask you, for the benefit of someone who hasn't looked at your catalogue or your website, what does West Virginia publish and for whom does it publish? What, what would be your sort of snappy answer to that? <laughs> We're in two or three core areas, and, and most of them have to do with Appalachia in some way. But a big part of what I've done here, and I think of the other, um, you know, universities where I've worked, which are all at some level regional, is try to think about place as not being uh, an antiquarian thing, but think about place as being a cosmopolitan thing. So if, if a book is about Appalachia, which is characterized by poverty, by a, a very heterodox political tradition, including you know, a, a vital socialist tradition, by extractive industry and the economic and environmental um, consequences of that, you know, so why not put the Appalachian experience in dialogue with other parts of the world that have gone through or are going through similar things. So the deforestation in the Amazon or you know, nuclear energy in Japan it become the sorts of things that we can be publishing about too. And it's a way to sort of take Appalachia, which is, which is generally identified with the margin and put it at the center. There are elements of our experience that, um, that will help people in other parts of the world understand their own experiences. Um, so we've done a book, for example, that's about the transition from fossil fuel economies in Appalachia and also in Wales. So a very specific example of sort of making that an international comparison. We have done books about race and extractive industry that I think you know, speak to, to, to broader concerns. But you know, even when we're not doing books about Appalachia, I think there's a sensibility to, to coming from Appalachia that permeates what we do. So we have, for example, a higher education list about teaching at the college level. And we're probably one of the very few and maybe the only small public university press to have a list like that. And the other presses that come to mind are Princeton, 
Hopkins and places like that that have wonderful higher education lists. But I think even though our higher ed books have nothing on the surface to do with Appalachia, they are necessarily informed with our being here. And I think um, publishing from, from a public place, a public university in a poor state, means that we publish them differently, means that we gravitate towards different subject matter within that general field of higher ed. And I think it's important to having, you know, to complementing the sort of books that are coming out of the big, well-resourced private university presses to, to spread that work out among other kinds of publishers in other parts of the world uh, is to me a big selling point for university presses and an important uh, role that we play. Now, Derek, I read some of your, your blog posts and, and some of the things you'd said on Twitter in, in preparation for this. And one, one of the light motifs, I guess, that comes out of that is that you believe that, you, well, I, I love the phrase you use, university presses are in a state of low-key thriving. <laughs> um, now, that, so so just, just unpack that for me a little bit, because there is a, there's obviously a countervailing view, and you're, sort of, you're sure. sort of responding to that, which is that university presses, if not in a state of crisis, are certainly, are certainly not thriving. So... Tell me why you think they're thriving and why you think this sort of misconception has has really gained such traction. I think if you look at the numbers, we're doing well, uh, specifically at West Virginia, but 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 across uh, across university press publishing, sales are up, and these are I've tweeted all of these uh, little little facts, but for, for the benefit of your audience, uh, sales are up about five percent, which is which is enormous in this uh, climate. And while maybe two or three university presses have closed in the last I don't know, five or six years, more have opened, significantly more have opened than have closed. So there are more presses. Um, they're doing better overall. Certainly it varies by press. But as an industry, we're doing better in terms of sales. And I think we're doing better, you know, I've talked about this previously in our conversation today. We're doing better in terms of getting our books reviewed and getting our books into bookstores and and all sorts of measures of Success. I think um, there are other sorts of success that tend to generate press releases and headlines in the higher ed press and the Chronicle of Higher Education and, uh, and IAG and other places. And I think you know when when somebody says they're going to reinvent publishing or they've got some grant to build a new platform that's uh, the future of publishing, and and some of those are great. I mean, I don't mean to to suggest there isn't value to thinking in terms of that kind of innovation. I think that's the sort of thing that eats up a lot of bandwidth when it comes to what people hear about publishing. And it connects to a very strong kind of set of cultural associations that we have about disruption and, and about progress. I think, I think there's, a, there's a notion sometimes, and this is why that, that um, kind of tradition gets a lot of attention, it's also part of the danger. There's a notion that there's some big new thing that's just around the corner and it's going to solve some supposed problem in publishing and it's going to be cheap. It's going to make everything a lot cheaper. That tradition can seem progressive to a lot of people because, because uh, open is, is exciting and technology is exciting, but I really would identify it, much of it with a kind of Silicon Valley orientation, which is a little bit politically more problematic. And I think it's important that university presses that do traditional university press publishing, where we're always innovating all the time, but that are mostly kind of resilient and, and publishing the way that they have, try to connect ourselves to another equally powerful tradition 
uh, or sort of you know a rhetorical constellation. It, for me, a kind of social democratic notion that uh, we're not for profit, we're public, and that society deserves a robust public infrastructure for for publishing is is the way to do that and and to make connections to labor, make connections to people who are concerned about the contingent faculty route, for example, or the people who are concerned about the defunding of humanities and humanistic social sciences. I, I think university press publishing is part of that same mobilization of political concern. And, and if we identify ourselves explicitly with that, it may be to our benefit and it may help to counter the notion that, that there's going to be this inevitable change that's going to be uh, beneficial for everybody. I think publishing has not gone the route of music or magazines because people don't want it to. For the most part, people don't want it to. People most directly involved readers, publishers, booksellers, uh, book reviewers, have made a conscious set of decisions that they, that, that they don't want to go that route, that they, they, their values say that they want everybody along the way to get paid, for example. And I'm proud that at the university press where I work, and I think most university presses, everybody does get paid, not a lot. The author gets a royalty, the peer reviewers get paid, the people who work here, the staff get paid. Uh, and, and we value the labor that goes into it, and it's it's sustainable. And it's not about disruption, it's about um, enacting those values and keeping publishing viable. So I'm, I'm proud to be part of that much, much larger, what I see as a movement. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that we don't change things. And I want to be careful about that, because I think sometimes I come off sounding very conservative. But an example that I sometimes point to is uh, digital printing. So most people don't know what digital printing is, and the point is they shouldn't know. It, it's the kind of change that's been enormous. It means basically when I started 21 years ago, uh, you had to print offset, and you had to print at least, I was told, 2,000 copies of a book uh, for the book to be viable. Now you can print a couple of copies of a book at a time and do the sort of mission-based publishing that university presses have always done because of this technology that's been mobilized to address a very specific problem it's been um, a, a seismic shift for us, but the, the point is to continue publishing the way we've always published. So, so as a consumer, you have no sense of this bit of change, hopefully, but it is a powerful change on our end that's, that's, that's an adaptation, not a disruption. And I think that's where a lot of the energy is. I think whenever people are proposing some enormous change, you should think about what problem you're actually trying to solve. And in the case of, of, of digital printing, it was to solve a problem, which was that we were overprinting for more specialized books. I think, you know, and there are arguments for open access along these lines. If, if the issue is, you know, medical research that's simply inaccessible to the global south uh, and people will die, then sure, that, that is a big enough problem and it's being published in journals, largely by Reed Elsevier and Taylor Francis. I think that is a problem where open access, a, a big solution like open access is commensurate with if the problem is that a monograph about Shakespeare costs $60 because that's what the publisher feels they need to charge in order to recoup some of the enormous expense that goes into publishing it, that to me is a different kind of problem and, and requires different sorts of solutions, including just funding the existing uh, infrastructure that we have. And that's part of my worry about the rhetoric of disruption, is that if we're not, if we don't to come back to your initial formulation, if we don't see university press publishing as thriving, then we won't celebrate its day-to-day -day successes, and we'll feel like we're, you know, propping up fax machines 
which are which are destined to, to, to fail, and you know, the email's coming, we don't need this. It's just not the case um, of universal press publishing. And if you look at our history, it's characterized far more by uh, continuity and resilience than by uh, big catastrophic change. So what do you think, Derek, the university press world could do to get the positive story out more clearly, to counter that, that narrative of of a sector that's possibly staring at its own demise at some point in the future. But would you agree that the university press world is perhaps not so good at, at, <laughs> at sort of banding together and sort of communicating with the, with the wider world? Well, I think we're often good at it individually. I think in, in the United States, I, I think about Congress. Nobody likes Congress, but they like their own Congress person. So I think people here at West Virginia, for example, in Nebraska, Georgia, all these, most of these places, maybe all of them, are really excited by the work being done by their university presses. Um, but maybe, again, they have this lingering sense that it's an outlier or that there is going to be some sort of change, even though they're happy with what's going on at their own publishing house. So I think, I think as, as I said, connecting it to a sort of bigger narrative, pointing out the politics implicit in the way that we talk about change are important. I think, you know, distinguishing between uh, different sorts of publishing is important. Every time I see a headline that says, scholarly publishing is broken, um, that's what makes me want to tear my hair out. I'm not even sure, to be honest, that, that, that commercial scholarly publishing in journals is broken. I, I think there are arguments on both sides of it. But the sorts of things that are being identified as the big problems, you know, that it costs $45,000 to subscribe to this journal, uh, and the peer reviewers don't even get paid, and so forth and so on, those are not the problems of university presses. And I think the more we can point out that, that not-for-profit university press book primarily book publishing, uh, is different from for-profit STEM publishing in journals, which is dominated by a couple of, of large um, lucrative uh, commercial multinational entities. That will help drive this point home. And, and I would hope that people making these, these uh, very sweeping arguments about the, the problems of, of scholarly publishing would begin to realize that they can't do that anymore, that they need to be careful to identify who what they think the villains are, they are, and to um, exempt and maybe even support the ones who are, who are doing good work. You know, there are going to be challenges to getting people to acknowledge the exemptions, but it's worth doing it. And I certainly spend a lot of time, as you may have noticed, uh, on social media, among other places, um, calling people out for when yeah. they misidentify mission and work and economics of uh, not-for-profit publishing, I'm hoping that catches on and, and does good work for us. So I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I would be interested in your ideas and the ideas of people uh, listening right now who I hope will feel free to get in touch with me. Uh, I, I think some of it is just individuals uh, holding others accountable. And then hopefully it reaches some sort of tipping point where, uh, where we begin to conceptualize it differently. Well, my, my little my little contribution, I hope, is by doing this podcast because I'm I'm mainly interviewing people who are connected with university presses who publish with university presses in order to say look at the look at the wealth of really interesting, stimulating, unusual books which are coming out. So I'm not so much going for the you know the thumping great you know histories that maybe are are at the front of the publisher's catalogue, but I'm sometimes going to the back of the catalogue and yeah. going, isn't this a really interesting book? And isn't this isn't this something worth talking about and celebrating? Even if you know, even if a listener doesn't go out and and buy a you know a seventy five dollar right. um, 
book about social change in Japan. Nonetheless, I, th- I hope this plays some small part in sort of celebrating the kind of work in just in just circulating ideas that um, that university presses do. Interestingly, m- m- my next stage, I hope, is to get university presses not just to promote their own <laughs> podcast episodes, but but ones by other pu- presses. That is that when I started this, I hoped that would be the case that they, you know that it wouldn't just be retweeted by the publicist at the originating sure. press, but at others. But I think things take time. I think there's a cultural, perhaps a sort of slight cultural reticence to be seen to be um, spending valuable time on anything else. But <laughs> I, I agree. And, and I, think, um, I think it's important that people in university press publishing uh, talk about other presses and, and not just the ones where they work. I think that's part of how the calculus changes. Um, and, and I have, in fact, been through deliberately in the course of our conversation so far in my efforts to point out the work by some other presses that, that I admire. I was thinking this morning about a, a book, very much a, a sort of back of the catalog book, I think, that I read several years ago from the University of California Press uh, called the, the Political Landscape by a, a sort of anthropologist archaeologist. It had nothing to do with my life, really, and was a first book, a revised dissertation, I think, and... Uh, I bought it at a conference. It was very much a, a sort of pure university press experience, I guess. But it's it's one of the books that I feel most fondly about that I've read, you know, from any publishing house. And and what I really liked about it was the experience of reading it. And 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 I have such a sort of emotional attachment to my memories. You know, I was already working in publishing. I wasn't a grad student or anything. But I would carve out time to do this sort of challenging reading, to do this contemplative reading. I had a, my wife and I had a young daughter at that point, and things were noisy in our lives, and, and I would wait till everyone else had gone to bed. And I remember the chair I would sit in, and the pen I would use to to make notes in the margins, and do this um, do this this difficult but incredibly rewarding work of reading uh, a smart book uh, from a university press, even though I wasn't studying that subject matter. I think that sort of um, immersive reading isn't going away. I think university presses publish uh, books that reward that sort of reading in a way that nobody else does. So while it's tempting to sort of point out the crossover books, and you know, I did it myself when I talked about our, our big successful book at the moment, I agree with you that we shouldn't lose track of those more specialized books uh, that absolutely deserve to be and, and to be books uh, and that aren't going to be done without university presses. I was talking to Derek Krisoff, director of West Virginia University Press. You can find out more about the press on their website, of course. And Derek, you'll find on Twitter, at Derek Chrisoff. You'll also find him blogging about university press publishing at christoff.wordpress.com. I'm hoping to feature one of his authors on the podcast soon. More on that in due course. And if you have things to say about university press publishing, do get in touch via Twitter or email. Meanwhile, you'll find 50 other interviews in this series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, Spotify and Google. Catch up on any interviews you've missed and leave a review. I'll be back again next week with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.